Coming up on Word Matters, the breath of fresh air brought by the word whistleblower and hipsters before they were hip. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. The word whistleblower brings some dignity to a collection of synonyms that formerly did not exactly invite willing association. It also had some shifting to do to get there. Ammon explains. In English, we have this great tradition of compound nouns, taking two words and compounding them, putting them together. And in a lot of cases, the way that the word moves is it goes from an open compound of having two individual words to two words separated by a hyphen or something, and then we end up with a closed compound. The word kind of grows together. And in a lot of cases, these words have very distinct meanings, which make perfect sense when they start off. And then when you put them together and you travel forward several hundred years or a hundred years, it's a little opaque. An example of this is jerkwater, which we define as meaning remote, unimportant, like a jerkwater town. And this has its roots in 19th century train travel, in which jerkwater referred to when trains traveled via steam engine, they needed water to cool them. And a lot of times, small trains that would go on rural lines had to take on water. And these trains were called jerkwaters from the motion of jerking the water up in buckets to supply the engine. And so the kind of movement of jerking the water up became an adjective used to describe the kind of place it was, and that then moved to a generalized term. So it wasn't and derogatory so people, at all. I think it probably had small and unimportant connotations from the beginning, but it's moved away from the train-specific meaning. It's like backwater in the sense that it's a remote place that may be unsophisticated or something, but it's not a place full of jerks. Right. It's not a watering hole full of jerky people. <laughs> exactly. We have all kinds of other words like this, like meltdown is a great example because we all associate meltdown. It could be an, an emotional breakdown. It could be somebody having some kind of fit. We associate it with nuclear reactors melting down. But the earliest use that we've seen of the word was an industry term in the ice cream manufacturing <laughs> industry in which it referred to the point at which ice cream would melt. It was a very specific term for ice cream melting. And nobody, of course, uses it that way anymore. Some of the other compounds that we have, they've stayed a little closer to their roots. And I think a great case of this is whistleblower, which is, of course, a word that is often in the news and we often have people asking us about. And a whistleblower, we know, is one who reveals something covert or who informs against another person. I think whistleblower is a little more forgiving than many of the words we have for this kind of person. It's a little more gentle than snitch, fink, or stoolie, or squealer, or tattletale, or something like that. When whistleblower first came into use, it was in the middle of the 19th century, and it really was just for somebody or something that blew a whistle. A kettle drum, a fifer, and a whistleblower forming the orchestra. They, the pipe layers and whistleblowers of the city, are sounding the alarm in earnest. And then it kind of shifted a little bit at the end of the 19th century. And I don't know if this was with the advent of like handheld whistles or with sporting leagues, but towards the end of the 19th century, it took on a, a more specific meaning, which was somebody who blew a whistle in, say, a sporting contest. An official again, or referee. Right. 
A football match was arranged between teams, blah, blah, blah. Mr. Arnfield being unanimously elected whistleblower. That's from 1895. He looked on the secretary as a personification of all the good qualities of what a whistleblower should be. This is about a football team, things like that. So it starts to be used in the 1890s in this very specific sense. It's not until the 20th century that blowing the whistle first takes on this kind of extended meaning, which we define as calling public or official attention to something such as wrongdoing that's kept secret. And in the 1920s, we start to see use. There was a citation from the San Francisco Chronicle. I am loath to believe that Mr. Johnson ever blew the whistle on a trusting friend. And thinking of saving his mother and father humiliation, he testified in explaining how he, quote, blew the whistle on his former friends. So we see the word is starting to shift and move around. And then we don't get to the modern sense of whistleblower that we all know and love today until the 1960s. And in 1963, we see the statement later says that despite the fact that Playboy was among the earliest whistleblowers and despite government Rockefeller's assurances that no economic reprisals would be suffered, it's about people actually informing on other people. 1966, Sidney Slater, official whistleblower of the Brooklyn Gallo mob, is running a citywide printing business under an alias. And so that's when we start to see the word take on this solidified modern meaning. It's not that far from where it started. It really is still somebody blowing a whistle, isn't it? It's really this metaphorical extension of a concrete task or act. It's a really common trajectory for a word to take. And it has this virtuous association. It's exposing wrongdoing is the idea of a whistleblower, because otherwise these other ideas like snitch or tattletale or whatever have kind of lesser or more petty connotations. Absolutely. Stooly, stool pigeon, rat fink. None of these are things that you would self-describe with pride. I was the stooly that took down (laughs) the organization. You know, you say I was the whistleblower that took down the organization. That's an entirely different feeling, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. And for example, I think it was 2002, Time Magazine had their person of the year was actually three people, the whistleblowers, Sharon Watkins of Enron, Colleen Rowley of the FBI, and Cynthia Cooper of WorldCom, three Mm. women. We think of them definitely as whistleblowers and not as snitches. They would never have had it be the stoolies. Person of the year, the finks. That would be great. Just would not work. That's right. (laughs) I think also you become a whistleblower because you are an insider. And I don't think you necessarily have to be an insider to be a snitch or a rat fink or a stoolie. Hmm. It means that you know something, but not that you are part of the organization or something. That's my sense anyway. Well, the other thing about whistleblower I never thought of is this metaphor works in the sense that you are alerting the public. You blow the whistle to announce the train, as it were. You're exposing something to the public. Everybody can hear the whistle we include in our definition is that a whistleblower is commonly protected legally from retaliation. Mm. And so it does have a status, separates it from these other words near synonyms, I would say. Well, and it's codified. There are significant laws and statutes that have to do with how whistleblowers are treated. So the word also has very formal legal application. I do think it's striking, though, if you look at what we give as synonyms for whistleblower. All of them seem in some way, I would say, deeply appropriate. Betrayer, canary, deep throat, fink, informant, informer, narc, rat, rat fink, snitch, snitcher, squealer, stool pigeon, stoolie, 
tale-bearer, tattler, tattletale. None of these are words of pride. No, so. definitely. Another thing I like about whistleblower is that it has this very classically English morphology. It's a word formed by a noun object plus an agent noun. Whistle plus blower. It's got that agent suffix er on the end, one who blows the whistle, which is also in tale bearer, one who bears a tale, mm -hmm. bearing being to tell in sure. this case. It's a very classically English word as opposed to a Latinate word. It's a very English, English word. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. Stay tuned for the lowdown on hipster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Word Matters listeners get 25% off all dictionaries and books at shop.merriam-webster.com by using the promo code MATTERS at checkout. That's MATTERS, M-A-T-T-E-R-S, at shop.merriam-webster.com. I'm Ammon Shea. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. The image called to mind by the word hipster changes according to the fashion of the day. But when English speakers first uttered the word, fashion wasn't really part of the equation. Ammon will elucidate. When we're looking into the history of words and their uses, one of the things that's always kind of enjoyable is when we come across words which are older than we think they might be and kind of forces us to re-examine how we feel about either the word or the thing that it describes. And some recent cases that we've come across, one was online, meaning connected to a computer system, which in fact goes back to 1950 book called High Speed Computing Devices and has a very clear use, the question of whether online or offline operation is more suitable, very similar to how we use it today. And also energy drink, which turns out, even though it's very popular now to have energy drinks and they're having kind of a renaissance, goes back to at least 1904. And one other one, though, that we don't fully define is the word hipster. I say that we don't fully define it because we do have an entry for hipster a person who is unusually aware of and interested in new and unconventional patterns, as in jazz or fashion. We do have an entry for it, but there are some earlier meanings that we don't define because they've kind of fallen away. And they were, as is often the case here, kind of strikingly literal in a way. And one of the earliest ones that we know of is a hipster was somebody who carried a hip flask. And this was going back to Prohibition. There was a use of it from 1921, hippity, hippity, hop, a hipster meets a cop, away <laughs> pell-mell to a dungeon cell, hippity, hippity, hop. 
Another use a few years later, a pint of hooch isn't much, but nine months is a long time in the opinion of old-time Joy Cup hipsters who subscribe to the theory that a pint is only sufficient to cause a mild attack of heartburn. Prohibition was repealed in 1933. So I think pretty much right after that hipster, in that early sense, lost its currency. As did another word, which we've touched on before and have an entire episode on, which is scofflaw. Scofflaw originally came in, I think, 1926, who did not abide by the restrictions of prohibition. And once prohibition ended, scofflaw lost that meaning entirely. So prohibition kind of changed some small aspects of the language. But after hipster lost that early meaning, it started being applied to hip-shaking dancers. So in 1932, there was a use in variety, Nina May McKinley, snake hipster, let off love nuts and noodles. Another citation from the Baltimore, the Afro-American, Nelson Jones is said to be the best hipster in Everett. And so this one stuck around for a little while longer. It was used for dancers, usually, not always, though, female. And we see it throughout most of the 1930s. And then it gets bumped, and it really gets bumped we know in 1938, and it's with the publication of a very famous work, kind of slang lexicography, which was Cab Calloway <laughs> published Hepster's Dictionary. And there's a lot of overlap, of course, between hepster and hipster. A lot of sources kind of define them synonymously, as with hep and hip. And I think beginning in 1938, hipster takes on this new meaning, which is, it's kind of morphed as it's gone along, but it's really supplanted the earlier two meanings of hipster. Do you have a definite idea that comes up in your mind when you think of the word hipster? Oh, I think of a young man with a uh, trimmed beard, possibly a mustache that twirls up a little at the ends, and <laughs> some skinny jeans, and maybe a plaid shirt and very particular taste in music, who loves bands that I've never heard of, and that's great, and also maybe is interested in bespoke butchery. Uh-huh. This is probably not what hipsters look like anymore. I don't know what hipsters look like anymore. <laughs> Actually, I haven't been anywhere in two years. I don't know what anybody looks like anymore. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's a working definition. I'm sticking with someone who dances enthusiastically with their hips, because that's easier <laughs> for me to, to pinpoint. Well, I think our definition is actually quite good in that it is not nailed down to particular fashion. It is attached very particularly to what is fashionable, and that will change over time, yes. of course. A difference between scofflaw and hipster is interesting to me is that scofflaw really just got broader. It kind of stretched out to cover other kinds of law-breaking activities. And hipster, the hip flask meaning, just completely fell away. It just died. Yeah, right. it just died completely. And the hip shaking, I don't know if that one has really completely died. I have no recollection of ever hearing that use. And then this hepster hipster seems like its own incarnation. It's not actually right. related to the hips at all. It's not anatomical. You're right. There is a definite semantic and derivational disconnect there. One of the things I think is interesting is the extent to which people are so often kind of judgmental about hipsters. And you're right, they do change from each generation has a new take on what the hipster will wear or be partial to. I remember coming across a citation from Herbert Gold, who had a book in 1962, The Age of Happy Problems. And he says, in other words, the hipster is a spectacular instance of the flight from emotion, which is kind of pejorative, but also it's broad enough that it can cover the hipster in any age. The flight any from emotion? I think wow. it speaks of a kind of 
amusedly ironic detachment. There's an illustration by an illustrator whose website is Dustin Land. Dustin Glick, I believe is his name, DustinLand.com. And he's got the theory of hipster relativity. And it's a, a cue, a line of young men, each one looking to his left and each person to the left dressed in a noticeably more relaxed fashion than the person next to him. And so you have the very first person, a man in a business suit, looking to his left. And his dialogue bubble simply says, hipster. And the man next to him is just a guy in informal clothes, a shirt that's open at the collar and chinos. And he's saying hipster to the next one who's wearing a T-shirt and jeans, who says hipster to the next one who's wearing plaid and hiking boots, who says hipster to the next one who's got tattoos and a mountain bike, who says hipster to the next one who's got a twirly mustache, a trilby and suspenders and a bow tie. In other words, it's kind of like an amplification every time it's turned up just a little notch. One person's hipster is another person's square. I do have a, a historic idea. I love 40s jazz, and I do have a sense of the word hipster in a kind of historic sense, like thinking, oh, there was a specific fashion of very baggy pants, very wide-legged trousers, riding higher than they would today, often a beret and those horn-rimmed glasses. Dizzy Gillespie always had kind of that little soul patch. There was even almost like a, a marketing icon of Dizzy Gillespie, no face, but just the glasses, the little beard, and the beret, and you knew who that was. And those were striped suits usually, and they looked comfortable and glamorous. And it was a kind of nightlife that was specific to bebop. And that's one complete idea about hipsters or hipsterism that I have in my head that is separate from the one that you described, Emily, which I also can hold as an idea. What year or what decade 40, is that? 1945, 46. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hipster is, is a useful word, and it continues to be used because it is not locked down to right. a decade. It is about the now. I looked up hipster in my own Twitter feed, and I gave a definition 10 years ago. And here's my proposed definition, which is people younger than you who do not invite you to their parties. <laughs> we are sad to be saying goodbye this week to one of our producers, Adam Maid. Thank you, Adam, for getting this little podcast off the ground and flying at altitude. We'll miss your competence, insight, and humor more than you can know. Best of luck in your next endeavor. Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us wherever you get your podcasts or email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Ammon Shea and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. 